Okay. To Matthew chapter 20 and 21. This is an important turning point in the gospel of Matthew. Jesus is arriving in Jerusalem in the week in which he will be crucified. We read last week, if you were here last week, that in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen in Jerusalem. Matthew chapter 20, verse 17, he was going up to Jerusalem and he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death. Jesus knew exactly why he was going to Jerusalem this week. And in this passage of scripture, As Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem in this world-changing week, on this day that we remember and recognize as Christians as Palm Sunday, a thing that we'll celebrate a few months from now, a week before Easter. On this day, historically, that we remember as Palm Sunday, Jesus is entering the city. And as he does, there is a question that rings out from our passage of Scripture, a question of monumental importance. That question is found in Matthew chapter 21, verse 10. The crowds of people ask, who is this? And there's an answer. This is the prophet, Jesus from Nazareth. That answer is true as far as it goes. But I want to suggest to you that there is a deeper answer. A deeper answer that Matthew wants to emphasize here in this passage of scripture that Sarah read a moment ago. Because our passage for today unfolds in three episodes. And in each of these episodes, Jesus is referred to as, quote, the son of David. That title is important in Matthew's gospel. Way back at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The very first thing that Matthew wants to tell us about Jesus in his biography of Jesus is that Jesus is the son of David. David. And as Jesus is entering the city in the week leading up to his crucifixion, here again, over and over and over again, four times in three short episodes, Jesus is described as the son of David. Why does that matter? Way back at the beginning of our sermon series on the Gospel of Matthew, I used a silly example for a serious concept. The silly example comes from the Marvel movie called The Black Panther. Some of you may have seen it. There's an important moment in that movie when an unidentified soldier in chains is led into the throne room of Wakanda. And at some point, King T'Challa says to this unidentified soldier, what is it you want? And the unidentified soldier replies, I want the throne. The room scoffs. An uproar emerges. The audacity. A minute later, the unidentified soldier yells above the chaos. Ask who I am. 
King T'Challa's brilliant sister steps forward and rattles off the details she has found through her initial research. You are Eric Stevens, an American black ops soldier, a mercenary nicknamed Killmonger. That is who you are. And the unidentified soldier in chains laughs. And he says, that's not my name, princess. He looks back to King T'Challa and he says, ask me, ask me who I am. And finally, at the climactic moment of this scene, one of the tribal elders raises his voice and finally asks, Who are you? And the soldier replies, I am Njadaka, son of Prince Njobu. And silence falls across the room because everybody realizes if this is the long lost son of Prince Njobu, that changes everything. Why? Because if he is the long lost son of Prince Njobu, that's not just a title, it's not just a family name, it's a claim to the throne. And it's a claim to the throne that might just change the entire story. And listen, the same thing applies here in Matthew chapter 1 verse 1. And the same thing applies here in Matthew chapter 20 and 21 as Jesus is arriving in Jerusalem. It's it's as if Matthew, who is writing this biography of Jesus, is looking around the room and just daring us, saying, ask me who he is. Ask me who he is. And when we finally say, who is he? He says, he is Jesus of Nazareth. But you need to understand, he is also the son of David. And that's not just a family name. It's not just an honorary title. That's a claim to the throne. And that might just change everything in the entire story. As we pay attention to this theme of Jesus as the son of David, what does that mean? We'll pay attention to what is displayed about the identity and mission of Jesus as the son of David in each of these three episodes briefly. And we'll land on one very important question at the end. We begin with episode number one. In chapter 20, verses 29 through 34, because Jesus is the son of David, he shows mercy. He shows mercy. Maybe a little bit of background will help before we get to the two blind guys crying out, have mercy on us, son of David. When we think of great King David, remembered in Jesus' day, Recognized by everybody in Jesus' culture as the greatest king in Israel's history. When we remember great King David, maybe we remember first and foremost some of his great military victories. We teach kids at a young age about the time that young David defeated Goliath in a one-on-one, mano-a-mano match, winner-take-all Nation for nation. And God's shepherd boy defeats the great giants. Maybe we think of David first and foremost as a warrior. 
But as the book of 1 Samuel presents great King David, he's not just a warrior who's able to defeat enemies. He's also a shepherd who is full of mercy. And so there's this beautiful moment after David has been anointed as the king of God's people, and yet before David begins to reign as the king over God's people. In this time in between being anointed and beginning to reign, there is this moment when David is living on the run. Instead of dwelling in the palace, he's dwelling in a cave. And 1 Samuel chapter 22 tells us about kind of the beginning of the building of the kingdom of David. And it describes it like this. It says, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul, gathered to him. And he became commander over them. Do you see what kind of king great King David was. He's a king who draws to himself those who are in distress. A king who draws to himself those who are burdened by debt. He's a king who draws to himself those who are described as being bitter in soul. You know what kind of king great King David was? He was He was the king of mercy from the core of his being. And as we see David's mercy, we see this as a predecessor, as a preview of what great King David's greater son will be like. And so as great King David's greater son arrives and begins to move toward the city of David. He's heralded and greeted in the first place, not by armies of soldiers. He's hailed and greeted in the first place by a couple of blind guys. A couple of blind guys with serious personal needs and not a lot of obvious things to contribute beyond their poverty and probably a lot of reason to feel bitter in their souls. This is the welcoming committee for great David's greater son as he draws near to Jerusalem. And yet there's something ironic in Matthew chapter 20. Because while other people see a prophet walking toward the city of Jerusalem, these blind men have eyes to see what others are not able to see. Behold, Matthew says, which feels to me a little bit mean to talk about blind people. You see, there were some people who were blind, Matthew says. But he's doing this on purpose. He wants us to realize that while they couldn't yet see with their physical eyes, they could perceive what others could not perceive. When they hear that Jesus is drawing near in verse 30 and again in verse 31, they cry out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. These blind men know at least two things very clearly. They know, number one, they've got needs. 
And they know number two, if Jesus is the son of David, then it's worth crying out to him with our needs. And as we see this picture of the mercy of great David's greater son healing and restoring sight to those who were once blind, it invites us as well to pause for a second and ask this question, do we realize our own needs? And are we crying out to great King David's greater son with them? I wonder what needs you brought with you today. I wonder if some of us shuffle in in January and February feeling a little bit distressed. Maybe feeling a little bit shackled by debt with all of the stress that comes with that. I wonder if some of us shuffle in on Sundays feeling bitter in soul, wondering if this is where we belong. Good news. If this is the congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of David, then this is exactly the right place for needy people like you and me to be today. I would love to I would love to eliminate some of the silly church names that have been chosen across the years. <laughs> the church I grew up at in San Diego, urban San Diego, had a church across the street literally called Fallen Angels Fellowship. I just thought like, do you guys even know your Bibles at all? I do not know what they were trying to get out there. But I wouldn't be so sad if some church plant someday wanted to call itself Cave of Adulam Church. A church for those who are in distress. A church of those feeling burdened by their debts. A church for all who feel distressed in soul. I'm telling you, that's the kind of church that Jesus came to build. And if you're here today aware of your needs, your griefs, your burdens your distresses, your own bitterness of soul, bring it to the Lord Jesus Christ. And find love, grace, and mercy aplenty in Him today. See, there's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't need Jesus. If you showed up today aware of your needs... That just qualifies you to participate. The only concern among Christians is for those who don't recognize their need. Or for those who haven't taken their needs to Jesus. If you're here aware of your needs, brothers and sisters, you're in the right place. Recognize your needs. And like these blind fellas... Let's take our needs to Jesus and say, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on us, O great son of David. Because Jesus is the son of David, number one, he shows mercy. 
move on to the second episode here. Because Jesus is the son of David, number two, in the second episode we see because he's the son of David, he fulfills prophecy. And we can say more specifically than that, because he is the son of David, he fulfills prophecy precisely according to plan. Chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. What is this plan and whose plan is it? It's interesting that in the opening verses of Matthew chapter 21, Jesus is doing some planning and some organizing. It's kind of mysterious to us. He sends uh, a scouting party of his disciples up ahead to a village up ahead. And he tells them, you'll find a donkey and a colt along with a donkey. Now, how does Jesus know that? Is this something that he arranged in advance with someone who lived there? Is this something he's receiving by kind of a prophetic word in the moment? Is this something he simply foreknows one way or another? We don't know. But I think Matthew records these details. Matthew, remember, as far as we're aware, is there among the disciples as Jesus is giving these directions. And Matthew remembers this and he wants it to be written down so that we realize it isn't just an accident that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And yet at the same time, it isn't just Jesus' orchestration, is it? It isn't like Jesus went into a village and stole a donkey so that he could ride into a city and look like he was fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy. It's not an accident, but neither is it Jesus' own orchestration. What is this plan? The plan is that Jesus will come riding into the city of Jerusalem exactly as Zechariah had prophesied it. But whose plan is this? Jesus gives some directions, but these directions are not rooted ultimately in His own plans or descriptions. These plans are ancient plans of prophecy laid out hundreds of years in advance by God through a prophetic word through a fellow named Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. Humble. Humble. And mounted on a donkey. You hear the surprise in this plan, right? The ancient world is full of stories of people who, through their conquest, would come marching into a city with a whole host of captured slaves up ahead, with an army of soldiers carrying their loot that they've gathered from their conquests, And finally, at the back of the procession, riding on a chariot with four war horses up ahead, here comes the great conquering king to great applause, ready for the city to celebrate his triumph, his glory. But according to the Lord's plan, the plan which Jesus follows with precision, Jesus won't come marching into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday with a whole bunch of captured people up ahead. 
He won't come marching in with a whole bunch of soldiers carrying swords and shields and spears. He won't come in with a whole bunch of loot that he's taken by force from another city. He won't come in on a chariot with four war horses. He's going to come in riding a little old donkey. (laughs) It's kind of like watching the Rose Parade on New Year's Day. And here comes somebody who claims to be president of some country in another part of the world, and he's riding along on his tricycle. Big old floats up ahead. We know what floats of glory looks like, but you're telling me this fool on a tricycle is a king? (laughs) Here comes Jesus, precisely according to plan. Not with a whole bunch of swords and spears and stolen loot, but with humility. Exactly as God designed it. This is a surprising description of the great son of David. But it's exactly what happened. See, as we think about the greatness of great David's greater son, we need to keep in mind the massive promises that were made to him and about him and for him. It all goes back to this moment in the life of King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when King David intends to build a temple for the Lord, a house of worship. And through the prophet Nathan, the Lord tells David, nope. You're not going to build a house of worship for me. But the Lord makes with David a covenant that day. A promise. A promise about great King David's greater son. And in 2 Samuel 7, through the prophet Nathan, the Lord promises, David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house or a temple for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. And then this is where like the the, the prophetic promise just kind of takes flight. It's no longer just running down the runway at high speed. It's flying in a way that we wouldn't have expected. David, I will establish the throne of your son's kingdom for how long? Do you see it on the screen? Forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And then... Along comes the son of David, anointed to be king, great King Solomon. And things start off great. And he builds a temple and it's full of the glory of the Lord. And the people are singing and shouting so loud that the ground shakes. But Solomon's heart is divided. Great King David's first king's son can't come close to fitting into these promises that were made. And if you know the storyline of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and 1 Kings and 2 Kings, chapter after chapter, we read in the biblical account 
how the kings in God's kingdom can't live up to these kinds of promises. And so for years, for generations, for centuries, the people of God are on a lookout for one who can fit with these kinds of promises. And finally, Zechariah prophesying in a day of darkness, knowing full well that Solomon didn't fulfill those promises made about great King David's son, knowing full well that king after king after king couldn't fulfill those promises. Zechariah looks forward and says, Behold, there really is a king coming. And he really is going to fulfill those promises. But he might not be coming in the way you would expect. He might not be riding on a chariot with a whole bunch of swords and spears when you first see him. Look for him riding humbly on a little tricycle. And here comes Jesus, precisely according to plan, entering the city of Jerusalem, riding on a little donkey. And as he does, a song is being sung. The crowds around him are singing this holiday song from Psalm 118. Hosanna to the Son of David. There's that title again. Hosanna to the Son of David. And Matthew is saying to us, would you ask me who he is? There's a lot of reasons that people might say they believe in Jesus. If a friend were to ask you, well, why do you follow Jesus? I'd imagine that some of us might prefer some of the answers that go something like this. I follow Jesus because I found forgiveness in him and I needed forgiveness. And some of us might say, I follow Jesus because I found life in him and I know that I needed life. Some of us might say, I follow Jesus because I've found joy even in a broken world together with him. And Lord, I know I need joy in a broken world. But you know one of the most profound reasons to follow Jesus as king? It's not only because of the forgiveness and the life and the joy that we find in him. Those are good reasons to follow Jesus. I'm not saying to take them off your list. But one of the profound reasons to follow Jesus as king is because it's true. Because he really is the son of David. And that really does change everything in the story. As confirmed by his precise fulfillment of these prophetic words. Because Jesus is the son of David, he shows mercy. Because Jesus is the son of David, he fulfills prophecy. And then we come to a third episode here. In Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 through 17, where we read that because he's the son of David, he turns tables. Jesus walks straight into the Lord's house. And he looks around. And he begins turning tables. Now, let me pause for one second and just say that maybe it's just me, 
But as I scan things that Christians write on social media, it seems like this specific passage of Scripture has become way more popular over the last few years. As cultural tensions have risen, it seems to me that people are more and more interested in when do we get to turn the tables? And so I want to be clear in saying that this passage of Scripture which describes Jesus turning tables in the temple, this is not a warrant. This is not a warrant for Christians to demolish other people's property or other people's places of worship. There is no instance in the New Testament that encourages Christians to follow Jesus and to imitate Him by attacking the temple in Jerusalem. Not one. There is no passage of Scripture where Christians in the New Testament are encouraged to attack the temple of Aphrodite in Ephesus. There is no passage of Scripture that gives Christians warrant to go and destroy other people's property in the name of Jesus who turns tables. Impurity, false worship, injustices surrounded the early church, and yet the New Testament never promotes turning tables as a way for Christians to follow Jesus. In fact, do you know what early Christians did when they came to this temple? When the early Christians came to this very temple, they didn't follow Jesus' example by turning tables. You know what they did when they came to this temple? They prayed. They worshipped. And so if you thirst for an excuse to physically throw tables or physically destroy property, I simply want to suggest this is not your passage. And it may well be that you're being shaped by something other than the image of our Lord Jesus Christ and His Word to us. Well, if this isn't here to teach us how to destroy other people's property or to destroy other people's places of worship, what is this passage for? What is it good for then? It's here to show us a preview. Jesus is showing us a preview of what he will ultimately do as great David's greater son, as his kingdom is established forever. Why does he turn these tables? I want to show you two reasons why. First of all, he turns these tables for the nations. The way that the second temple, by the way, this isn't the temple that Solomon himself built. That one was destroyed. And this is the second temple that was built in Jerusalem. And in the second temple, there were kind of a, a series of courts that were laid out. There was in the kind of deepest part of it, the Holy of Holies, only the high priest enters here. And then outside of that, a court where only the priests could gather, but not the rest of the worshipers and on and on. And the outermost court, the first place you walk through when you enter the gates of the temple is a place described as the outer courts. And there in the outer court is the place that not by the Lord's command, but by 
cultural custom, this was the court that was reserved for people from other nations to come and pray, or the court that was reserved for people from other cultures to come and worship the God of Israel. And here in this outer court that was reserved for people from every other ethnicity in the planet, over time, this place reserved for worship from people from other nations, it gets more and more cluttered, not with worshipers and not with space for people to pray, but with tables for exchanging coinage, exchanging money. Buying doves to offer as sacrifices, buying animals and so forth. And so as Jesus enters the outer court, the place that the the rulers of the building have set up for the nations to worship, and he looks around and he sees there's no room for people to pray. There's no room for people to worship. What does he begin doing? He begins making space for the nations to come and draw near to God. Because that's what the temple was designed for in the first place. And so he calls out these very first words in Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. He says, he quotes words from Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. It is written in Matthew 21, verse 13. My house shall be called a house of prayer. Mark gives us a little more of that quotation from Isaiah 56. My house is supposed to be called a house of prayer for the nations. It's exactly what Isaiah said it was supposed to be for. It's exactly what Jesus believes it's supposed to be be for. And so as Jesus is turning tables, what is he doing? He's turning tables for the nations. He's turning tables for people like most of us whose lineage is not Jewish to have space to draw near and encounter and worship the true and living God. He's moving tables. He's turning them over. Why? For the sake of the nations. But I want to show you a second reason why he's turning the tables. He's also turning the tables not just for one group. He's turning the tables against another group. And if I could borrow words from a commentary I read this week, He's turning the tables against those who are rich in spiritual pride. And in fact, here in this passage, Jesus uses three carefully chosen quotations from the Hebrew Bible. Three carefully chosen quotations from the Old Testament, each of which brings with it a stinging rebuke. Um, If I were to say to you, with friends like these. You know exactly what I mean, right? What's, how do we feel? With friends like these, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And in the same way, Jesus chooses three friends like these quotations from the Old Testament. He doesn't even need to finish the next couple lines for those listening to know where they go. But they realize exactly what he's saying. The first of them is Isaiah 56, 7, which I quoted a moment ago. My house is meant to be a house of prayer for the nations, yes. But do you know what comes right after that? Isaiah 56, 10. His watchmen are blind. As Jesus announces, this place is supposed to be 
a place of prayer for the nations, he is also rebuking the leaders of that house in his generation for their blindness. The sting comes even more in the next friends like these quotation. Jeremiah 7 verse 11. Here in Matthew 21, it's where Jesus gets this line. You have made this place a den of robbers. That line carries a sting of its own, right? You realize what a robber's den is, right? A robber's den isn't where the robber goes to steal stuff. The robber's den is where the robber's bring their stolen stuff back. It's where they bring their stolen treasures. It's where they bring their stolen glories. It's where they bring their stolen goods and they treasure them up for their own enjoyment. Jesus says to the leaders of this house in his day, he says to those who are rich in spiritual pride, you've made God's house of worship, his house of prayer, into a place where you store stolen glory. And it goes beyond that because with friends like these, they know what comes next. Jeremiah 7 verse 11, has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. And now, because you have done these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently and you did not listen, and when I called to you, you did not answer, therefore I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust, and to the place that I give to you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offering of Ephraim. Friends like these, Jesus says to the leaders of the temple in his day, to those who were rich in spiritual pride, I'm about to cast you out. And then there's a third chosen quotation This one comes because the leaders are getting a little annoyed by the kids who keep on singing Hosanna to the Son of David. They don't like the kids singing this song. They especially don't like the kids singing this song to Jesus. So they come and they bring their complaint to Jesus. And Jesus looks back at them in verse 16 and says... Haven't you read what the Bible says? The Bible says, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. But there's a friends like these end to that quotation as well. Because Psalm 8-2 ends like this, Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. You know why the kids keep on singing Hosanna to the son of David? In part, it is a warning. It is a stern warning to those who have studied the Scriptures and yet who do not have eyes to see what even blind men were able to perceive. It is a stern warning to those who are rich in spiritual pride but who lack the poverty of spirit to come with humility to the Son of David and say, have mercy on us. It is a strong warning 
to the leaders of the house of worship in Jerusalem in Jesus' day, it is a strong warning that Jesus is turning the tables. He's turning the tables for the sake of the nations. And he's turning the tables against those who are rich in spiritual pride. And so here is the big question that all of this raises. Matthew has put this question right in our Bible. Who is this? As his way of saying, ask me who he is. And he's given us an answer once, twice, three, four times in three little episodes here. Jesus of Nazareth is the son of David. Jesus of Nazareth is great King David's greater son. So here's the question, the big question that this sets in front of us. The king has come. Will that be good news for you? The king has come. And for those who with humility like blind men, recognize our needs and say, Lord, have mercy. The coming of the King is the best news the world will ever hear. For those who continue only to treasure up stolen glories, for those who refuse to perceive what even blind people can see, For those who reject Jesus, the King has come and the warnings have been sounded. Will this be good news for you?